hello. I am Ashley Caudill, Senior Instructional Designer at the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and welcome to Designed for Online. In this podcast, we will discuss hot topics around online teaching and learning. We will be posting new episodes the first and third Tuesday of every month, so be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out. Feedback is a powerful instructional tool that improves student confidence, awareness, and motivation for learning. At the School of Education and Human Development at UVA, we have been digging deeper into our feedback process to reimagine how we can engage faculty and students in the feedback cycle. In this episode, Jenny Quarles will be serving as your guest host and will be joined by Dr. Naomi Winstone, a published author and expert on feedback from the University of Surrey in the UK, and Joe Four, a UVA faculty member within the School of Law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. No, I am not Ashley Caudill. This is Jenny Quarles, Director of Online Initiatives for the University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development. So lucky to serve as a guest host today because in a fangirl moment, I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. She is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Surrey, Dr. Naomi Winstone. Would you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work? Hi, thank you. Yes, so my uh, main area of interest is feedback from a psychological perspective. So um, my background as a psychologist led me to try and understand feedback in a different way, really, and understand not how to give feedback effectively, but more to understand how people receive and engage with feedback, and therefore what we can do to help provide environments where those skills can be developed and and learners can really thrive through engagement with feedback. And that interest for me really came from a time when, um, as well as as being a truer and and teaching psychology, I had... um, responsibility for learning and teaching across a whole faculty as as an associate dean and we had to do lots of initiatives strategically to try and improve feedback Um, and we seem to be doing the same things over and over again and they weren't really having much of an effect so it made me think right well how can we understand this problem differently and that really led me to the program of research that I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. That's amazing so anyone who's followed my work this semester knows that I have been um, preaching what I call your gospel around feedback and a new approach to feedback. And I've literally, if if someone hasn't read your book, I've given them a copy of the book. So hopefully you're seeing book sales go up, but um, <laughs> not enough people are doing this research. And so something that struck me the minute I started engaging with your work is that we at our school and more broadly at our university, don't have a consistent understanding of the word feedback. So I was wondering if we could start there. When you use the word feedback, what do you mean? It's interesting that, that you say that, that there isn't a consistent use of the term because I think that's one of the big problems, not only in practice, but also in, in the research literature as well. I've been at so many conferences where we've literally had arguments about this very question because people have such strong views in different ways about what that term actually means and what it doesn't mean. Um, and so that, that is a real challenge. The word means very different things to different people. 
I think for me, I see feedback as more than just comments or um, information that we might give about how somebody has, has performed. Um, they are important because they are the input into a much more complex process that when those comments are received, people have to understand them. They have to um, decide whether they want to take action and, and if so, what the action might be. So it's a much more complicated thing than just providing comments um, or giving feedback. And we recently had a look um, at the way in which the term is used in the in the research literature. And what we found is that there's so much variability. Um, people use this word feedback. And in some cases, they are referring to a much broader process. But in some cases, they are just referring to those comments that instructors might provide. And that led us to propose a distinction between feedback information and feedback processes. We can still talk about those comments, they are important, but that's just feedback information. When we're talking about the overall work that feedback does and the impact that it has, that's a feedback process. And I think the other real challenge with that term feedback is if we look at what it actually means in other languages, it gives us a real insight, I think, into, into this, this broad range of um, representations of, of what it actually means. In some languages, when, when you, you translate from English to that language and then translate back to English again, you see things like advice um, as, as, as one back translation, answers. Should feedback really provide answers? I don't think so. I think it should generate questions for learners, not provide definitive answers. Um, opinion is another one or discussion. So there's a real variety, I think, in terms of what this, this term literally means. Um, but I think the really important thing is making that distinction between the input, the feedback information, and then the overall system, the, the feedback process. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. In our conversations, we have definitely found that the more common understanding was around feedback information. And so you know, how, what information are we providing and is it enough information instead of thinking about what are ways that we can really engage and what should be a process. So that's a great segue to my next question. So how do you kind of approach introducing this idea of a process or cycle to, to faculty who are unfamiliar with a process of feedback? And then how do you kind of introduce like what formats that, that could be in? It, we particularly work, for example, with online learners and online faculty. And so for some, that's a barrier engaging in a feedback process. For some, it opens other doors. It's kind of a mental attitude we're finding. So I'm really curious about how you kind of introduce these concepts, but then also when we're thinking about how we can help faculty think about formatting their own process, what, what advice could we give them? I think this is something that I've been working on quite a lot at, at my university. And you're right that the, the primary thing we think of is, is that point of taking a piece of work, assessing it and, and writing some comments. So I start with that because that's what people are most familiar with. But then I say that's the middle part of a bigger process. That's the assessment phase. That's where we actually do the assessment, provide the comments. There's something that comes before that that I call the preparation phase. So at that point, what we need to do is, is help learners to, to really set the ground um, 
groundwork for being able to, to make sense of and use those, those comments. Now that might come from the way in which we explain the assessment task. It might be doing some activities before they even submit that work to help them understand the criteria and apply them to their own work or work of peers, for example. So we have our assessment phase and there's this bit before um, the preparation phase. But there's also a really important bit that comes afterwards, which I call the consolidation phase. And that's really recognizing the fact that once we've given those comments, that's the start of the process, not the end of the process. So what can we do to help learners make sense of those comments? How can we build in opportunities for dialogue, help them apply that feedback to other work? So starting with the familiar, but then bookending it with these other two really key uh, phases, what we do before they receive the comments and what we do after to make that process um, much more comprehensive and really support learning. Um, the second part of your question, so how can we actually um, start to make this, this happen in different formats, perhaps how people might work with these, these stages? One of the things that I think is really important is that we don't try to be too prescriptive in saying this is how feedback has to happen and it has to be this way in, in all cases. In the UK, our higher education system is still quite heavily regulated um, in terms of quality assurance. We have external examiners. Um, we have the, the teaching excellence framework, all of these things that regulate the quality of higher education. And one of the problems with that is that it leads people to try and um, adopt consistent approaches so that it looks very well thought through and organised and, and defensible. But that doesn't work in all cases. So I think the most important thing to recognise when we're, we're working with, with faculty who want to implement some of these ideas is to look at the nature of the discipline. What does feedback look like in a particular discipline? Now, in education, when people are, uh, uh, let's say, working as a, as a teacher in a classroom, they will be receiving feedback from, from learners, perhaps from, from parents, from um, head teachers and so on. That's very different to how feedback operates in the professional world in, in healthcare, for example, or in architecture. And I think when we want to help people use feedback effectively, we need to look at the nature of the discipline and say, what, what is feedback in this professional world? And how can we help bring that into the classroom when we're working with students so that we try to train them really to deal with feedback in the context of their discipline rather than this generic one size fits all approach. So starting with the discipline and and what it is and, and what feedback means in that discipline is, is a really important idea, I think. I think that's really helpful to ground it in the discipline. And for us, you're right, there is a lot of opportunity for feedback. Often students, though, are internalizing that feedback as criticism, whether or not they put the word constructive in front of it. So another segue leads me to my next question. Part of the process work that you talk about in, in the book that I read is about peer feedback. And mm -hmm. so we really want to help faculty bolster that part of the process. I, I think all of our faculty would tell you that peer engagement, peer interaction is so important to them, but they have struggled successfully facilitating a peer feedback element in their courses. There's been a, a lack of quality, a lack of consistency. And so I'm wondering, you do a great job in the book and please don't give away all the, all the secrets of the book, <laughs> but if there's something that you wanted to highlight for us around peer feedback, I'd, I'd love to hear your kind of number one takeaway. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of peer feedback. I think it's brilliant. I think it has multiple pedagogic benefits um, for those uh, who are providing the feedback, those receiving the feedback. 
I think one of the challenges is that um, we we think, oh, this is a great thing to implement. Let, let's try it and see how it goes um, without recognizing that actually it takes a lot of groundwork to get it to work effectively. You can't just introduce peer feedback within a course and, and expect it to, um, to, to have positive uh, effects. So it needs that investment in the process and it also needs really careful scaffolding. So people are, are novices at giving feedback. It sounds like a really natural thing to do. We do it in our, in our everyday lives. We give feedback to our friends on their cooking or their driving. But when we're in an educational context, it's so different. It's, it's particular standards and criteria, some of which are implicit. And how do you be motivational in what you're saying, but still providing good information? So it needs time and we need to scaffold. So that really means giving um, students the opportunity to practice and to receive feedback on their feedback. If we can do that over a couple of cycles, they will be more confident and they will also be able to provide better quality of information um, for, for their peers. I think it also helps them then to understand why it's important that they do provide useful information um, and don't just say, oh, yes, everything's great. You did really well. Um, sometimes they can be reticent, to be honest, and, um, and with their criticism. So I think it needs that careful groundwork. And relating to, to the point we were just discussing as well, I think it's important that we explain to learners why giving feedback is such a crucial skill that they are going to need. Um, we're not just doing this because we want to save time and we don't want to do the marking. We want them to do it for us. We're actually doing this because we recognize they need to develop these skills. And when they go for a job interview um, or they go on to further study, to be able to say, I've worked really hard at this and I found it difficult, but then I understood different strategies that I could use to provide feedback, that's going to be really beneficial um, for whatever field they might go into. So selling the benefits to, to the students as well, I think is really important. Yeah, I remember um, early in my career, I taught a grammar theory and practice class, and it was about preparing students to be teachers and to teach grammar. And First of all, it was amazing how afraid people were of that because they'd gotten their hands slapped so much, like the very kind of harsh, um, this is wrong, red pen kind of feedback. But I was surprised the original curriculum did not have a space to teach them how to give feedback. Mm. And I thought, you know, there was so much emphasis on them having an understanding of grammatical constructs themselves and then them developing lessons, but there was nothing about how do I critique an assessment? Mm -hmm. How do I provide feedback that builds up my learner? How do I engage in a dialogue? How do I show them that it's important? And so mm -hmm. for not teaching K-12 educators how to do this, and I think that's shifting. I think we're starting to do that. We've certainly not always prepared our higher education faculty to, mm -hmm. to do that work. So Again, another reason I love your work. So thank you. So I'm curious, as I continue to support faculty on this journey, how would you get people started to kind of set them up for success? It's mm, a really good question. And, and I think you're right. There are really interesting individual differences with some people lo love to just try something new and, and, and others need that, that more gentle approach. I think it's starting with a couple of principles that that person can can work with. So um, one of the ones that, that I tend to start with is encouraging people to think within their course um, 
where can feedback land? Um, and this comes from, from David Bowd. He talks about feedback having a landing place that when we provide comments to a learner, there needs to be somewhere, another task, another opportunity where they can directly apply that feedback. That's where the learning happens. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be doing an identical task next in the cycle in quite a short period of time. It could be that a year later, there's another um, piece of work or task or learning opportunity where those comments will be directly relevant. And what I mean by giving feedback a landing place then is flagging up and signposting to the learners. This is where you can use that information. This is why it's valuable um, and, and make sure that you, you revisit this information at that point in time. So that's one key principle that I think is, is quite a simple one just to think, where is the landing place for my feedback and how can I make sure learners know that that's a landing place? And then another simple one is to think about the comments that you're actually providing to learners. So it might be that those comments are being provided verbally. It might be that you're annotating a piece of work with comments in the margin. Comments need to be actionable. So if we're taking the time to provide a comment, some feedback information, there needs to be something that can be done with it. And if we actually look critically at our own comments and say, well, what, what could a learner actually do? What would I, I be expecting them to do with this? It really makes us look quite carefully at how we're framing our feedback. Is it actionable? And if we're just providing a single word or something that um, indicates we, we don't understand what they've written, for example, yes, that's useful information, but how can we then make that an actionable comment? So it's a call to action for the students. So they see that, right, my professor has given me some information here and, and I need to go away and do something um, rather than it just being some, some information that they passively read. So it's a couple of, of of little things that I think help to just start that mindset of thinking about feedback impact. Where is this feedback going to go? How can it be used? And what is it going to do to influence students' learning? I, I mean, I think that's amazing advice. And I know that I will take that up in my continued work with our faculty because uh, I, I, I particularly love the idea of a landing place. And I can't tell you how many courses I've worked with personally that are ultimately preparing a student for a larger culminating summative assignment mm -hmm. and faculty spend laborious, you know, amounts of time, you know, annotating on this thing in the class is ending. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking a lot about that internally and shifting what that cycle looks like and where the feedback goes to really set the student up for success. One idea that we have had is is being more collaborative as a department and thinking about how they could uptake that feedback for success in the next course. I'm so excited about all the conversations that we're having <laughs> around feedback. So I love all these ideas. One big last question for you. In um, some of your work, you talk about feedback being, you know, evaluative or past oriented or directive and future oriented. And I see this aligning with what you're talking about in terms of these landing spaces, right? For them to uptake and implement feedback. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit as, again, we continue to support faculty doing this work, how impactful um, and how do we see the impact of both evaluative and directive mm -hmm. feedback in student work? And how do we know we're being successful when we're doing that well? 
Yeah, so this distinction between uh, evaluative or sort of past oriented feedback and directive or future oriented feedback is something that's of great interest um, in my in my research program. And there's a lot of uh, at least anecdotal evidence in the literature that that directive kind of feed forward type of, of comments is, is really valuable. It's what students say they want. There's a lot of evidence in the literature that that's what they want. And some work suggests that that is the most impactful. So recent work from, from John Hattie, where they analysed uh, how learners did on, on um a piece of writing they then got feedback and then they looked at how they they did on a, a, a resubmission and they, they did find that this kind of where to next directive feedback was the the type of comment that, that facilitated improvement but our research uh, where we've been looking at memory for feedback suggests that actually that kind of directive where to next feedback is not remembered as well as evaluative past oriented types of comments which is a really interesting finding and it's, it's really robust. It's something we found in lots of studies. So I think that kind of where to next directive feedback, it can be, uh, it can be really beneficial, but it's important to recognise that just writing our comments in that future oriented style does not necessarily mean that that feedback is easily actionable. You know, you could say something like be clearer or be more critical. It's directive, it's future oriented, but it doesn't really give the learners very much information about where to go. And again, the really important part of that is, is whether comments are evaluative or directive. Are they actionable? Is there something that a learner can do? I think this distinction also encourages us to think about, again, these activities we might do in what I talked about as that preparation phase before a piece of work is actually done. Because if we think about um, an analogy that, uh, let's say we've, we've cooked a dish for somebody um, and they tell us, oh, it, it, needed, it needs more salt. So it's giving some directive information. Now, it's very difficult with that piece of information to know how much how much salt? We automatically infer that we, we didn't include enough. That's, that's part of the inference process. But then we're thinking, right, we need to include more. But how much more? And how will we know that we've got it right? And if we have a trial and error process um, where we can do that over multiple periods of time, we will get a sense and eventually calibrate how much we need to include. But over time, what we want is to be able to, to develop our, our own palette so that we're able to judge for ourselves whether there's enough salt. And this analogy, I think, really is, is important in terms of how we prepare learners to evaluate their own work. Um, that we, they don't always have the opportunity for that trial and error. Let's keep submitting a piece of work, keep submitting it. Am I being critical enough now? Do I need more? Do I need less? What, how am I doing? Um, but over time, we want them to really understand criteria and the standards themselves so that they can look at their own work and go, am I being critical enough? Do I need to do more? So that important element, again, is, is preparing learners to, to participate in the process. It's not just about the comments themselves, whether they're evaluative or directive. It's how learners are prepared to be able to use that information um, to be able to, to, to develop their own work and become less reliant on others to give them feedback. We use that phrase or a similar phrase in um, instructional design all the time when we work with faculty where we really, we actually say, teach them to fish, right? Mm. Because we could design something for them, but if we, you know, underscore the principles of the design or why something will be more effective presented in this format, you're right, they uptake that. Mm -hmm. And when they're planning the next course, 
they take those same principles and they make better instructional decisions. So, you know, I love all the alignment. It makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am about to say goodbye because I want to be respectful of your time. But um, as I do say goodbye, I'm wondering if you can tell us what's on the horizon for you and research and feedback. What, What do you think is next? Mm. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is um, working with some researchers uh, across many, many different countries where we're trying to understand what goes on in the black box of, of feedback. And what we mean by that is that as instructors, when we give comments, we don't really know what happens next. What happens uh, in the mind of a learner when they receive those comments? How do they understand them? What do they pay attention to? What do they remember? How do they decide what steps they're gonna take? So we're using um, some really cool methods like eye tracking, um, measuring event-related potentials, really trying to to uncover that question of what happens next. Um, Can we gain insight into that black box and, and find out how feedback is processed, how it's understood and how that then influences the actions that people take so it's a lot of fun um, and we're getting to to try out lots of new methods um, work with different people um, and hopefully we'll we'll come up with some new ways of of researching feedback that's amazing well I wish you the best of luck with this next phase and um, I can't wait for the book to come out that will be about that so please make sure (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much we appreciate your time The pleasure. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between Jenny and Dr. Winstone. I know I certainly did. Dr. Winstone is such an amazing expert in the field, and I know I've taken a ton of notes of how I can implement feedback and feedback processes within my personal practice. So I hope you have too. But I wanted to take this moment to give everybody a bit of a brain break and talk about the answer from last time's trivia question. So the question was, what was the first soft drink consumed in space? The answer, Coke. Coke became the first soft drink to be consumed in outer space when astronauts aboard the Challenger tested a Coca-Cola space can in July 12th, 1985. Did you get it right? Now, because this is our last episode of the season, I will not leave you with another trivia question just because I don't want you waiting months before you hear the answer, but I hope you enjoyed the trivia questions as much as I did. And be sure to tune in to next season that is going to start in September. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. I am excited to introduce today's guest, Joe Four from UVA School of Law. Joe, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in feedback? Sure, thanks, Jane. Thanks for, for having me on. It's exciting to be here. Um, so I, I am the co-director of the Legal Research and Writing Program at the University of Virginia School of Law. Um, so we, all of our first year law students uh, take a required course in practical skills and research and writing. And so primarily I teach those courses and so really that's where my interest in feedback started is because it's, it's, it's kind of the main part of my job is to look at student writing, to teach them, but then also to review it, give them feedback that they can implement and then um, apply to future assignments that they're going to do in my course. And then, of course, they're going to take those skills with them when they go out in the world as as lawyers uh, or doing other kinds of legal work. That's great. You know, I think when we those of us who don't work in the law space think about legal work. I don't think we really take time to reflect on the different types of rhetoric 
that are involved in legal writing. You know, I think we think about trials and, you know, what we see on TV, but I know there's so much more to it. In your blog post, I recently came across, you talk a little bit about live feedback. And so I'm really curious um, how that became important and, you know, how you would implement live feedback and really what you mean by that term. One of the things that is common in the legal writing space in terms of giving feedback is, as you mentioned, live feedback, sometimes called live grading, live critiquing. Um, uh, it was, you know, one of the the early proponents of this was uh, Joe Kimball um, from the Cooley uh, School of Law. Um, it, the Professor Joe Kimball has been doing this for a long time, but a number of other faculty members in the law space have been doing this. And, and really what it involves is um, kind of what it sounds like, giving feedback live, reviewing writing as a student is sitting in your office um, and giving sort of feedback on the fly, giving your impressions as you are reading it. So putting yourself in the shoes of a client or a judge or, or the other decision maker um, or somebody who would be reviewing the writing, maybe a supervisor in a law firm setting or something like that. And actually giving the student feedback as you're doing it in real time, um, which can be seem intimidating, can seem a little scary maybe for students, um, but it, it's a technique that's been used for a long time. I love that idea. And I taught composition and rhetoric for a long time before I moved into online learning. And for me, I found that it, although it was a voluntary process, when a student did engage in that way, where they came to my office or we looked at writing together and absolutely where I was kind of giving a, ver you know, a verbal explanation, which we don't always have time to write out for a student too, in great depth in terms of like why we're approaching the feedback in, from a particular perspective. I can imagine that's incredibly helpful to a student. Um, and I wish students chose to do it more. So it's a, number one, it sounds like this is something really students engage in at law schools, um, perhaps maybe not by choice, that this is a, a, a form of feedback that you encourage to an extent that maybe it's the way feedback is done, which I think is a great cultural choice. But I'm curious about how you see this kind of feedback model then impacting their learning and then their work as they move on in law school. Because we're seeing gaps. We see gaps in other schools, not, not law schools, but other schools where the feedback that you get in one course doesn't that necessarily translate or impact in future courses. And so that's a space I'm interested in. So I'd love your thoughts about how are they impacted by this and what progress do you see as a result? This is where I think live feedback is also really, really valuable because it gives you that opportunity to respond in real time, both in terms of, you know, to the concerns you're seeing in the paper, but also to any gaps that the students have in their understanding of your feedback, right? You know, if you're, if you're dealing primarily with written feedback, obviously, you know, we have questions on what we see. Uh, the students write, we say, this looks unclear. I'm not sure what this means. Students obviously sometimes feel the same way about our comments. I'm unclear. I don't know what this means. Um, and by sort of relying primarily on written feedback, even if you do, you know, as a lot of people do, right, written feedback coupled with maybe a follow-up conference or something, there's still maybe that opportunity for students to misunderstand something, or maybe they get an initial impression. Even if you try to correct it later at a conference, they still might kind of have misunderstood exactly what you were trying to get across. Um, and so that live aspect of, of pointing out something live allows them immediately to respond, to ask a question. I'm not, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Or, you know, um, from the instructor's perspective, to look at it and say, you know, you know, I'm not sure what you meant here. Can you maybe talk through it? In the legal sense, so in, in legal writing, one of the things that we see 
you know, is, is that a lot of the gaps, and, and this is obviously a situation in a lot of other fields, but especially in legal writing, where we're dealing with very sort of, you know, complex topics, and we're trying to explain or walk through legal issues. Um, sometimes the, the problem isn't the writing, right? The problem is the thinking. And so you tell the students, say, hold on, I, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at in this paragraph, and say, can you talk me through it? And the process of them talking through it, say, well, there you go, you just described it, now let's just write that or let's think about how to break that out. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, having them hear things um, and, and see them on the page live, some of those lessons uh, are cemented a little bit better. Uh, also, I think that just breaking things up and having things said, uh, one of the techniques I should have mentioned earlier, when we say live critiquing, uh, very often, lots of faculty members, I don't always do this with students, but a lot of people who do live critiquing, live grading, they, they read the writing out loud as they read the paper, um, which by the way, for some students, they haven't done before. <laughs> They've never actually heard their writing read out loud. Um, and that is different, right? It, it makes an impact when you hear that sentence and you say, look, I just read that. Do you hear how, look at that, you know, the, the parallelism there, or oh, notice how we started there, but then at the end, Kind of we use different terminology so why did we make that switch in there because up here you were using this word to describe the situation here we use it differently and it's kind of confusing it makes it seem ambiguous um and a student hearing that might make a lesson stick in a way that a written comment may not. those are great points i i think this also really hits home in regards to thinking about the context of both what the writing is for and what the writing is about and in an environment where students are going to have their work examined in just the ways that you describe, right? Um, it's so important for them, I think, to see you discovering those mistakes or that ambiguity, but then also kind of having that opportunity to immediately talk it through. It, it makes me feel like, and this is how I am with every episode, we should all be doing that. Like, why aren't we all doing that better? Let's get going. Let's do it tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I'm going to ponder that. I, I know our faculty, and you, you led with this, do struggle with time. They want to give effective feedback. They want to um, be thorough, but just like you said, it's a, it can be a time suck and it can very quickly spiral out of control to, to an extent that some students are delayed in receiving feedback, right? Because that time suck just compounds student over student. So I think thinking about different modalities and formats for feedback is, is huge. And so with that, I'm going to transition a little bit. Um, also in your recent work, you talk a little bit about peer feedback. That's a huge challenge for us, particularly at our school. We love peer feedback. It's so important for us, particularly in online spaces that peers are interacting and feedback is a meaningful way in which we can scaffold them for you know positive and um, impactful interactions. So we, we like to do it, but it doesn't always work out. And so you have some interesting thoughts about peer feedback. So first, can you summarize for our audience, you know, your perspective on peer feedback and then your approach for how to make that a, you know, maybe a better experience for students? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think peer feedback is um, very valuable uh, for students, both in terms of the students who are getting the feedback, but also putting the students in the position of reviewing work. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate too, in, in the sense that in my courses, I also have 
many talented teaching assistants, uh, fellows who help comment. They're upper level two and three L uh, law students um, who help comment. And one of the real benefits that they get of is to help comment, you know, by reviewing others' work, seeing shortcomings, seeing what's effective, it actually impacts their own writing. So I think there's huge benefits, both for the person who's giving the feedback and receiving. Um, and so that's why I, I really enjoy peer feedback. Um, as you, you mentioned, there are a lot of challenges. Um, it, it's hard enough for, you know, trained, experienced faculty members to give good, effective feedback. Um, sort of turning loose a bunch of sort of novice students on each other's papers without a lot of direction is, uh, is really challenging. So, so the number one thing I have to do is a, a couple of key things that I see in terms of ensuring that you give yourself the best chance of peer feedback. Um, number one is you, you got you to gotta wait a little bit. You know, peer feedback has to proceed from a place of camaraderie and um, collaboration and goodwill. Right. Uh, everybody has to understand that the feedback is being given in, in with the best of intentions. And I think you can only really accomplish that once people are comfortable. So, you know, it's definitely something that we for, for me, it's something I reserve until you know, well into the semester. Sometimes peer feedback is, is I, I teach primarily year long classes. I teach a fall and a spring with the same students. And often I wait till feedback sometimes into the spring. I, I may not even get there in the fall. Um, you know, I really want to make sure these students are comfortable with each other, preferably if you have things like small groups that you've used in discussions. I like to keep all those groups together, um, people that they extra know and extra work with. So everybody, you know, is going to be kind and constructive. Um, the other thing that's really critical is, um, you know, to really make sure that students understand the purpose and the value of this, right? I think a lot of students are going to be skeptical, both in terms of the value of it. Like we said, you know, what what am I going to get from my neighbor? I mean, I, we're both in the same class. What could I possibly learn from them? We're both taking your class. Um, so I think there are students that are skeptical about the value, but also students skeptical about their ability to give feedback. You know, who am I? I I'm just learning the same as everybody else. How can I give feedback? Um, and so framing it in terms of uh, having students understand what they actually do bring to the table. So for example, in a legal writing context, right? None of my students are practicing lawyers, right? They are novices. They're just starting out. And yet, you know, there is real value in a, an unfamiliar person, you know, a lay person reading this work. Because again, the situation of advising a client or somebody else, you may very well have lay persons who are not trained lawyers reading your work. And so it is valuable to get the feedback of a person who, even if they don't have a full grasp of the legal issues and the technicalities writing, for someone to look at that and say, yeah, I know this is supposed to be legal and it's supposed to be a little bit complicated, but I'm still totally lost. That is a valuable concept. Or I got lost here. I was with you until this paragraph and then here I just, I got lost. Um, or this word threw me. That's a really valuable piece of insight. So students need to be told, I think you need to frame it and explain to them very explicitly, you know, sort of how um, the exercise is gonna benefit both parties. And then the last thing I'd say is, is it's really critical to give some really clear priorities and instructions, right? It, instead of just saying, hey, you know, look at each other's papers and tell them what you thought. I think that is a really fraught exercise. Um, I prefer to make it very limited. When I do peer feedback, it's always around a very particular, particular topic. So for example, you know, um, I've sometimes done it with, with fairly narrow things, something like um, uh, paragraph cohesion 
or transitions. Sometimes we're talking about transitions within and between paragraphs. I'll say, all right, I want you to look at the, you know, your trade papers with your neighbors. And all we're looking for is read through these paragraphs and we're looking for, you know, clear topic sentence, transitions. Are there places where you're not sure we're, we're changing direction or within? Are the sentences connected together? Do we have that connective tissue that's tying this sentence to the next thought to the next thought? So very clear and then explicit instructions, right? Do you want them to, and I, I don't mean to, you know, get down too much of the weeds, but I think you gotta, you gotta really literally, you know, do you want them to mark on the paper? Are they working, you know, digitally? Are they going to highlight something? What do you want them to do? Do you want them to suggest a change? Do you want them to just highlight something? Do you want them to rewrite the sentence? So all those could be valuable things for students, sort of as editors or just as raising issues to talk through it afterward, but really, really explicit instructions um, to narrow the task that students are being asked to do. So I, I think that that is, is probably when they're most effective. I think that's great advice. From my perspective in, in, in the field of education, we talk a lot about something called red pen syndrome. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but for those of you who haven't, it's this idea that when we approach everything that needs feedback or everything that needs improvement, it can be paralyzing for the student receiving that feedback. But I think it also um, ends up being diluted, whereas when you approach, whether it's peer feedback, whether it's feedback from, from the faculty member, when you approach certain concepts, right, whether you're looking at content, whether you're looking at grammatical structure, et cetera, mechanics, when you approach kind of goals for that assignment in a different way, then it's operational. And for me, that's the key, right? How do we operationalize feedback so that they can improve? Thinking about sort of red pen and overwhelming feedback, you know, just being sort of overwhelmed or feeling the need to comment on everything. You know, one, one thing I have to remind students too, when they do this exercise, that I think is really critical, is to remind them that their job is also to point out things that are done well, <laughs> right? To say, uh, I think sometimes, especially, you know, again, novice uh, feedback givers, you know, think they get that red pen and they're like, all right, finally, here I am, I've got the power. And they think that their task, right, is just to find the quote, you know, the bad right, the, the problematic. Um, and of course we know, right, as people who give feedback, know that it's just as critical to give the good stuff, you know, to point out oh, this was done well or this was effective so that it can be replicated. So that, I'll just throw that in there that that's an instruction too that students absolutely need when you turn them loose here. No, that's that's a great point. I remember in my early training, I had a mentor tell me to, to use a feedback sandwich. And it's, you know, a silly little analogy, but it really worked for me And that like your bread, right, was the, the kindness, the, you know, the pointing out the good and, and having that bottom layer of also ending with good or positivity and that they were going to be able to uptake this feedback. It was going to end up being a great project, um, reinforcing that positivity, but also thinking about the meat of that sandwich. And again, you wouldn't have a sandwich that was peanut butter and turkey and roast beef because who would want to eat that sandwich, right? Instead, it has to be something that's consumable. Um, and so then it has to have the right layers. So you have to have the right lettuce and the right pickles and whatever. And so that's always stuck with me from way back in the early 2000s. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I, it's still applicable and I, I think it's exactly resonating with what, what you're sharing. So thank you. Um, so last question, I think all of our tips and ideas today are great, but in the spirit of feedback, and I, as I think about my faculty, it can feel really overwhelming when faculty are already burdened with, you know, service, research, instruction, preparation, mentorship, etc. 
How would you advise a, a fellow faculty member in thinking about improving their own feedback processes? I think you've identified probably the central problem, right? And feedback is is time and pressure and feeling the need to 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 give all this feedback because we want to, right? That's at the end of the day, that's that's what we want to do. Um, I'd say a couple of things. One is to to be creative with the mechanisms of feedback as you mentioned the blog post is kind of dedicated to that it's exploring some alternative formats i think some of us can get um a little uh rigid in the way we think about how we give feedback or sometimes i think you know some faculty are sort of inculcated in the idea that there is one proper or if, you know correct way that you know unless you you know you handwrite long form comments on a paper and then type up some elegant cover letter that explains all the things you know that, that, that somehow that's the only valid form of feedback right and then anything that differs from that or deviates or anything that's that's novel is somehow lesser so that was one of the goals of my the blog post was to explore these and try to explain that you know this is not about cutting corners it's not about um shortchanging students right it's not that well we do the live critiquing so we, we we don't have to give them as much feedback we get it done get it out of the way it's actually the opposite it's actually these efficiency strategies let us do more they let us be more effective in some sense or as the you know the the blog post mentions things like you know recording comments with audio or video other other modalities um you know they they still have a place so i, I think one is just encouraging uh both faculty members and you know individual faculty members but also you know, departments and chairs and supervisors um because i think sometimes especially for some of the newer faculty members they've only seen maybe one model or they get they've seen one way of giving feedback they might think that that is the expectation they say well if i do that i'm going to be criticized for being lazy or not being effective or i'm not doing the traditional way right so so i think sometimes i would encourage you know whole departments and supervisors to to embrace those you know to look at people who are experimenting or trying new ways um and encourage that rather than sort of upholding just one model of feedback the other thing i would encourage people to do is um and you touched on a little bit earlier because you mentioned the word goals right you talked about goals and objectives um, and just like we spend so much time on our, our scaffolding and assignment design i think that's an area where often we we fall a little short as instructors is um sticking with goals and priorities on the feedback side as you mentioned it's, it's that red pen syndrome it's we feel the need it's very hard i think for us sometimes to to miss anything or to skip anything you know in the name of we want to we want to point out everything we want to make sure we catch everything and show everything and teach our students everything but of course the reality is um a that takes way too long b it's impossible and c even if we could do it it's just going to overwhelm and uh demoralize our students right uh, they, they can't learn 27 new lessons on a single assignment and they're not supposed to right that's why we have these assignments that's why we scaffold that's why we teach we're trying to teach a limited set of things at any one time and so um i know this is really difficult i've, I've been there and i know how hard it is to stick to those priorities but to the extent we can really really sitting down and ask yourself and actually that's um you mentioned my blog post. So uh, there, there's one recent blog post, but it's actually part of a longer series, the, the Center for Teaching Excellence. I've, I've had, I think, two others before that, and there'll be one more coming out in a few weeks. And this last one is all about this topic about prioritizing, um, really focusing on what is it you want for um, students to take away, you know, and, and, and a limited set of goals and really 
writing those down and sticking to those as your primary feedback um, you know, priorities as you are commenting. Um, I think that's critical. I think that's because ultimately that preserves efficiency. It, it makes the best use of your time. And you know, it, it ultimately is gonna lead to the best student outcomes. You mentioned about students taking that, those lessons with them and moving them, transitioning to other subjects. And I think the first step to that is they've got to fully understand those lessons. And if you throw 35 things at them on a paper, they're not going to learn it. But if you throw three or four central ideas in one assignment, and then the next assignment, they get another three or four, and the next time they get another three or four, by the end of the semester, they are going to have a really solid grasp um, of those ideas are going to have that core that they can then take with them. So um, I think that that is absolutely critical here is is really thinking seriously about what are your goals for the feedback um, and then sticking to those as you're commenting, which is tough, but I think it's essential. It absolutely is. But, you know, it. I think you're giving the best advice you can. You know, it, it doesn't have to happen overnight. And every step that we take in reflecting on our practices is just better for our students. So thank you so much. I can't wait for the next blog post. And for our listeners, we will make sure that we link to your blog in the show notes. So thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Jenny. It was a pleasure to be here. And that concludes this episode and season of Designed for Online. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing about the true benefits of feedback and encourage you to check out Dr. Winstone's book, Designing Effective Feedback Processes in Higher Education, a learning-focused approach, as well as Joe's blog series within the UVA Center for Teaching Excellence. Both are going to be linked in our show notes, so be sure to check them out. I also wanted to thank both Jenny for being such an amazing host for this episode, as well as our two guests. And thank you to our listeners. Be sure to be on the lookout for new episodes of the Designed for Online podcast featuring hot topics in higher education when we return in the fall. If you have an exciting topic you want to hear on our future Designed for Online episodes, feel free to email me at ac8ga at virginia.edu. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.